This week on the Network Break, we're discussing a network OS running on DPUs, Intel killing FPGA products, a new network operation startup, and more. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Juniper AppStore, where we talk about the latest features in AppStore's intent-based networking platform. And by the way, check out our human infrastructure newsletter. Each week, we highlight interesting tech and industry blogs, share community podcasts and videos, and we have a few laughs. It's free to sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. You can also peruse all 250 back issues while you're there. All right, let's dive right into the news. Pluribus Networks, they've announced that its network OS can now run on NVIDIA DPUs in addition to white box switches. The Pluribus NOS creates a data center fabric for software-defined networking, and by running the NOS on a DPU, organizations can now extend this fabric to individual servers or server clusters. I feel like we've talked a lot about DPUs in the last few months, Drew, and I, might, I hope people don't start to think that it's tedious, but what we are starting to see is that DPUs are finding their productization and they're coming to market. So this announcement does feel really significant to me that this is the first company to come out with a viable strategy for using DPUs in the network. And I am discounting startups in this space that are so niche as to be fundamentally unworkable. So what Pluribus has done here is they've turned to the NVIDIA Bluefield uh, DPU, Data SmartNIC uh, Data Processing Unit, and then loaded the Pluribus NOS, that is the NOS that runs inside the switches, into the NIC. And so you can now effectively imagine that the same operating system that runs on a switch that Pluribus uses now also runs on a NIC, which means the network now exists inside of the server. The DPU, of course, um, is actually stacked up with ARM CPUs, with DRAM, as well as a mm -hmm. high-speed forwarding ASIC that does, you know, not only does it do forwarding, but it also does encryption, it does lookups, it does holds the route tables, all that stuff. So now you have a situation where the server is functionally approximating the performance of a high-end router or a high-end switch and have the same networking functions without being involved with the CPU inboard. So any of your server right. functions don't know or are necessarily even aware of this, this, not this feature. Right. So you get networking capabilities right on the server without having to worry about taking away CPU capability from the actual applications that are running there. You also get that sort of separation of duties where the network folks can set up the policies and whatnot that they need to on the DPU without having to involve uh, the DevOps. Exactly. The so it's, if you want to come at the point that you want your server to have a network up until now, the way to do that was to use something like a software switch where say NSX, for example, and it runs in the CPU and it burns anywhere from 10 to 40% of the server CPU. And in some cases it can take, you know, if you're looking at a server CPU with one to 16 cores, the networking functions can consume one, two, three, four cores out of that server to be able to deliver firewalling, security, threat inspect, you know, threat analysis and inspection, forwarding, MPLS right. packet imposition, you know, all that sort of stuff that you want to have done at the edge of the network. And so this is actually saying, let's go the other way to this. Instead of running it as a pure overlay, just extend the network straight in. Now, of course, you're still running an overlay. You're running EVPN. We've talked, we've had plenty of sponsored shows with Pluribus uh, over the last few months. You should go and look at those if you want to understand, but they run an overlay network. So you don't no longer have the, the current situation where NSX is running an overlay over your EVPN overlay in the physical network. It's all one network, which has substantial benefits, I think. Yeah, I think in that it's, you know, again, it's that notion of extending the fabric that you've already built in the data center. If you're running the Pluribus NAS on your switches, now you can run it, uh, extend it out to a server or a server cluster as needed. Also, uniquely to Pluribus, they're running a, a controllerless architecture. That is, the state for the SDN functions is actually distributed to every switch and node in the network. So you still don't have to have 
a bank of servers. So for example, Cisco ACI needs you to buy half a dozen to a dozen UCS servers to be able to run the ACI platform, to be able to do some overlay networking. Even if you're running VPN, other people want you to buy a bunch of you know x86 servers of varying capacities. Pluribus says that's not necessary. You can just run it all on the switches in a distributed fashion. And so that same tool just goes all the way to the edge of the network, which is quite unique. It's not something anybody else is doing. Right. Uh, one of the other things that they've added to this too is uh, a distributed firewall capability, which can only run on the DPU. They don't have the distributed firewall on the switch yet. Um, but that does let you do some more fine-grained segmentation of specific kinds of traffic if you want that uh, at the server level. Yeah. So that means they're not just setting up uh, EVPNs and saying, send the traffic away you go. They're actually adding the filtering functions to the edge. Now, it should be noted that this model, in case you're having an epileptic fit thinking that this is going to change the, you know, doesn't fit your model. It should be remembered that everything to do with data networking, the data network model that IP promotes, is that state should be held at the network edge. There should be no state in the network core. So when we talk about things like eVPN and MPLS, uh, you know, whatever you want to use for microsegmentation and for overlays, what we're actually doing is moving all of that configuration and that state into the network itself. And yet the fundamental design of IP, the fundamental design of Ethernet was that none of that should be required. And we've sort of laid all this complexity into the network. So to me, the emergence of DPUs means I can now get the networking functions out to the edge of the network. Every time I add a server with another DPU, I get more performance in terms of doing the encapsulation. I get greater mm -hmm. access to firewalling because every DPU adds to the firewall capacity. If I've got to do threat inspection and load balancing, every DPU adds more hardware acceleration to that function. Whereas before with NSX, every time you added load balancing and firewalling or any of the other virtual switches, right, you actually didn't scale up. You put more and more load onto the x86 CPU. So for me, this makes a logical sense. And you know, we have seen lots of different approaches to try and extend the network inside the server that really haven't worked. And, you know, we, this seems to be the way forward. This idea of a DPU with a network operating system on it, giving you the functions that you want. And keep in mind too, that this is going to bond into the visibility solution that Pluris puts together. You want to see visibility into flows. You want to capture flows. You want to do packet capture. You want to know what's happening inside of the server. You're going to get that as well. Actually, I don't think they can do the packet capture yet on the DPU um, or the flow tracking. That's going to come later. I, when I had the interview with them, I asked about those features. They said they won't be on the DPU. All right, I jumped the gun there. But, you know, they'll be able to when the software catches up, I suspect. There's no reason. Yeah, they'll, they'll bring it on eventually. Yeah, they've got right. the, there'll be a first release. And as they say later on in their launch, they're looking for victims. Uh, I mean, early adopters, uh, early field trials, <laughs> victims, as they say, uh, who want to get as into this, say. you know, that want to start playing with this. And I, I think this is going to be very interesting to see this sort of happen. And I also think we will see the same thing emerge from competitors. Pluribus has stolen a march here. They've made a move. They'll be the first to market with this, I suspect. And, you know, the other startups in this space are now, uh, so if you look at somebody like Pensando as a custom uh, DPU. DPU maker. Yeah, yeah, they've built their own. And now we're looking at this one, which comes from NVIDIA. And Intel will have one shortly, and I imagine we'll see emerging smart, you know, DPUs from probably Broadcom, and I think that will be enough. And they should be just a limited range of choices. We don't need, you know, dozens of different varieties of SmartNIC. I don't need one from Cisco and one from Juniper and one from, it's much easier, I think, from a hardware perspective, if they just say, we'll adopt generic hardware from somebody and then run our software on top. I don't want, I don't think there's value in it for customers to have a diverse range of solutions here. Do you agree? 
I think, you know, you always want some kind of choice because you want a little bit of competitive, um, you know, pricing and feature set uh, competition. I, I think, yeah, too many is is probably, it, it just clogs the market. Yeah, I don't think there's any value in having a half a dozen different NICs, you know, smart NICs, you know, slash DPUs. Which is not to say that won't happen no. because the smart NIC or nav DPU market is very hot. So that may attract other investors. But yes, you know, uh, you want <laughs> you want to have <laughs> yeah. a, a reasonable amount of choice. Yeah, I could imagine that we end up with a situation where we have, you know, NVIDIA with the Mellanox slash Bluefield. We see Broadcom come out with one. We see Intel come out with one. And maybe Cisco, maybe Cisco or Broadcom. Three would be enough, I think. Any more than that? Well, there's other smart NIC players like Netronome and others who are in the space who could also, you know, turn their uh, development in that direction as well. I think. Yeah, we haven't seen that though. There's there's a dozen smart NIC players in that space using either custom ASIC or FPGAs, and we'll talk about that in the next mm -hmm. piece uh, to do acceleration of you know normal flows. But they don't seem to have at this stage made any noises that they're about to release a full-on data processing unit. You know, with ARM cores and DRAM and, you know, sort of moves from a, you know, $1,000 NIC, $2,000 NIC at, at most with an FPGA to DPUs, which are going to be dramatically different. They're going to be running at scale. They're going to run ARM CPUs and DRAM. The cost underlying cost structure of that is radically different, I think. Yeah, I think so. So it's hard to know, yeah. Yeah, and to round that out, Pluribus does say they are starting with NVIDIA, but they do plan to bring the NOS to other DPUs or smart NICs as, as they go. <laughs> well, you know, if their NOS can be ported over to other people, then yeah, that Why makes not? sense. I, I imagine that yeah. Dell will be big on uh, IPUs, for example, and with the Intel, Intel's made a huge push around IPUs. I sat through some uh, sessions this week uh, about an open, about the Diamond Bluff initiative where they're talking, trying to get them to work cooperatively so that we do have a, a common standard between varying hardware supplies. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. Yeah, so we do have links in the show notes if you want to find out more about what Pluribus is up to, and that's probably is a good time to transition to our next story, which is about Intel. Uh, they are issuing end-of-life notices for three products in their FPGA line of programmable acceleration cards, Intel saying that declining demand and product transition is the reason for the EOL. So we just alluded in the previous discussion to the concept of smart NICs using FPGAs. Uh, and Intel is end of lifing their programmable acceleration cards. These are smart NICs by somebody's measure, and they run flexible programmable gate arrays. This is a type of a hybrid between software and firmware and silicon. You could load code mm. into the FPGA and effectively dynamically create an ASIC architecture inside. An ASIC is much more fixed, faster, and much more functional for especially for networking, but it can't be reprogrammed. So if you want to change right. something about the forwarding or the routing or the, the packet rewriting, an FPGA can do that. And up until now, it's been a popular choice for high-performance uh, packet inspection and certain types of appliances using FPGA-enabled NIC. And I think that this signals that Intel saying FPGAs are over, the future is in the DPU, or as they call it, an IPU. Right, which they're calling, uh, what is it? IPU is a intelligent intelligent processing. Yeah, that's right. Instead of data processing, yeah, I think they do it just to put the word Intel into it. They would much rather probably. Yeah. It's also copyrighted, yes. so you're not allowed to say it without saying copyright Intel. Uh, so I think that that this is a signal that Intel, for example, is seeing that the legacy ways of approaching or, or the existing ways of of Nick, smart NICs are end of life. And under Pat Gelsinger, the company has made it clear that they're going to walk away from existing markets and drive customers into new markets that 
well, you know, arguably would suit Intel better. But I think also Intel needs to focus on things. It wants to spend money on new fabs. There was an announcement this week. They sat down with the European government and announced that they're going to be building, you know, spending mega billions in the EU uh, to right. basically satisfy the EU government. And of course, they're sticking their hand out and saying, we need uh, your help to give us permits and tax, tax breaks. breaks. Yes, we love um, <laughs> we'll love ourselves some free money. We don't want to pay tax, but we love taking money that came from taxes. So it is very interesting to see Intel sort of saying, "Well, the FPGAs are over," and I think we'll see. This is a signal that DPUs are the way of the future, and they're going to be putting all their resources in behind that development, which is you know leads me to conclude wonder where is the future for FPGAs. Uh, this was a core application for that technology, these smart NICs with FPGAs. And it should be noted that back in uh, 2015, Intel spent $16.7 billion to buy Altera, wow. which was a leading FPGA maker. It was going to revolutionize Intel at the time. Now, for sure, Intel did put some of that FPGA technology inside of its CPU and GPUs as a way of you know adding functionality and fixing things in post. But... Um, arguably how much of that $16 billion has been realized? Hard to say when it's been replaced with ARM CPUs and ASICs. So it's an interesting situation here where the evolution is happening really quite quickly, I think. Uh, just to round this out, uh, there's three FPGAs that are being EOL'd uh, in this announcement. We have the link if you want to find out what they are. They are going to be orderable until July 11th of this year, and final shipments are expected in March of 2023, although Intel notes that due to supply chain constraints, you may not actually get that delivery. So if you are using these... Uh, mm -hmm. FPGAs, you may want to look into this. That really sounds like we just don't want to make any more of them because there's not enough capacity, <laughs> doesn't it? Really, <laughs> it's just like we're we're kind of done. We're done. Like, sure, we'll sell you a few more, yeah. but uh, yeah, we're yeah, done. it's not a two-year or a five-year rollout. It's a yeah. So I think yeah, in that we, context, there, there's a couple floating around in a storeroom somewhere, and we'll we'll get them out. But. Yeah, well, I mean, Intel's got the Tofino. Remember that Intel has the Tofino as well. So in similar to what you know, this idea of doing all of the networking silicon, I think Intel's committed to seeing networking silicon get right across its product line. So we're going to see switches based around the barefoot technology, and you're going to see smart necks based around the Tofino to Tofino chipset in some form or another. And I think Intel is going to want to drive that very hard. And I think they see that as a competitive advantage versus Broadcom, particularly. NVIDIA, of course, has stolen a march by buying Mellanox a couple of years back. And uh, they, I think Intel wants to move rapidly to freeze Broadcom out of this market, even though Broadcom is the dominant supplier of Ethernet chipsets today. Yeah, we'll see. Tofino is the programmable ASIC, so it is designed for networking devices, specifically switches, and it is supposed to be obviously more flexible than a fixed function ASIC that you would get from Broadcom and others. But I, based on what I've seen, I have not heard a lot of pickup of the Tofino or even programmable ASICs in general. No, I think Intel's going to redo them a little bit and probably they need to redevelop the Tofino to be manufactured on its own process. I suspect at a manufacturing level, the Tofino was designed to run on somebody else's silicon fab and the Intel mm -hmm. fab processes are radically different. They'd use a completely different physical methodology. And that means redesigning the, the ASIC to run on Intel's production lines. And if you're going to redesign it, you don't just do that and then start shipping it as Tofino 2.1. I suspect it's more like there'll be a Tofino 3, which is a fully Intel chipset, and they'll be working on what features and functions do they want to add to this and what do we need to do to make that realistic.
But again, I think the market for folks who actually need to program the packet processing pipeline is pretty limited. So we'll see if that investment by Intel in buying Tofino pays Yeah, out. that was the challenge with it is to find use cases where core switching needs to do packet processing. And I think at the edge in the DPU, it makes much more sense to do rewrites. When we talk about right. the edge related architecture of the internet, then the more you do at the edge. So maybe what Intel does with it is takes the Tofino design, moves it to the smart neck and uses it as a forwarding ASIC for SmartNIC, wraps it on with some, you know, if not ARM, then maybe Intel CPUs to get a, a clear differentiator and see how that works out. All right, moving on, uh, there's a new startup called Selector. It had its official launch this week. Selector brings machine learning and analytics to network and infrastructure data sources to help network and operations teams identify problems and make fixes faster. Yeah, you took the briefing on this. I didn't really see anything here that really excited me. It's interesting in the sense that it seems to be a fairly hot, what I think of as a, a fairly high level attempt at AI ops that sits above what I would regard as narrow offering. So we've seen lots of vendors offering AI ops on top of their technology. So uh, Juniper Mist adding AI ops to its wireless uh, and its campus and some of its SD-WAN stuff, uh, you know, and so on. But this seems to be a bit more general. Is that reasonable? I mean, the way I'm looking at it is a sort of universal analytics engine where, you know, say you've got logs in Splunk, you've got SNMP data sitting in various stores, you've got your SD-WAN controller, you've got uh, your switches pumping out network interface stats, you've got flow records. It will ingest all of this uh, and try to normalize it and then correlate so that you can get a sense of, am I looking at a networking problem? Am I looking at an application problem? And where specifically is that problem? So it's kind of like a monitor of monitors in some way. Yeah, that, that was my thought. I mean, to me, the core of AI is about collecting data from somewhere and then analyzing that yes. data to build models of events that can be determined from the data. So if you can collect a bunch of log data from a big enough you know, data set, you can then analyze that. And hence, we've seen AI used to classify, you know, if I look at all these images, I can say that this is a monkey and this is a flower, right? And right, then right. once you've got those models, you can then take those models and then send them out to a local node, so edge computing, right? And so you send the data and the models will say, oh, I'm seeing these things which match the models that I've trained from data collected elsewhere, and that becomes sellable. And so the, the, the challenge is to build AI models that people will pay you for, right? Right. I, I think the magic here, what, what they think they have cracked is that they're looking at uh, information coming in in a bunch of different formats. So SNMP comes in one format, your flow records come in a format, your logs come in a format, your events come in another format, all these different formats. They're trying to find a way to nor normalize so that they can understand context around it and then provide that correlation analysis that actually lets you take all of these different formats, turn it into something more interesting and useful that helps you dig into and solve problems. Yeah, that's right. So the challenge here is you don't want to be competing head to head on narrow use cases. You couldn't outcompete Juniper right. on its own products or, you know, any of the other companies doing AI on their AI ops. But what you can do is go up the stack and say, well, if I was to take the logs from Kubernetes and from your OpenStack and your VMware and your application and your service mesh, then I could actually start to, I've got a differentiated value prop because I'm doing cross-functional. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Challenge. Yes. It's that, you know, analysis overlord of all of the different data silos you already have, which is, I think, in, in one sense, a clever play. The other thing is that it can always be trumped by someone that sits on top of that. But what, that's a different discussion well, for another day. I think the challenge here is the wider your use case, the less likely your AI model is to be useful. So mm. because your model has to be trained, you know, what are you going to do? Start When you want to correlate Kubernetes data against a threat feed 
against a, a stream coming off a firewall or, you know, some sort of flow, the, mm -hmm. the models that you have to train have to be really general purpose. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you end up with this situation where the, the manager of managers, and I've been through this many, many times over the years. Right, you know, right. We've seen this before. Yeah, the yeah. point SNMP managers did something useful, but they weren't wide enough to actually be multi-team or multi, you know, you couldn't spec, you know, move them broad enough. And yes. then you go up to the broader tool, say something like network node manager or some general SNMP manager. And it was kind of useless because it didn't actually tell the people who were working on the network, the server, the storage, you know, the whatever. <laughs> yeah. So the the challenge here is to convince, I think to convince customers, because I'm certainly unconvinced that if you have a general purpose AI ops solution that's doing, you know, and notice here that this is more monitoring, it's not opping. So there's no configuration here. Because uh, configuration is full of risk and much harder to do, and maybe they hope to come back to that later on. But you know, ingesting a whole bunch of data feeds across a whole bunch of different things, you know, like so, you know, DevOps, NetOps, InfoOps, Firewall Ops, SecOps, I don't know, um, is a useful idea. Is it something that works in practice? Lots of questions there. Lots of questions. Yeah, as we were, as I was getting the briefing from them, I was thinking about the rise of the SIM market or SIEM uh, back in the day when you were trying to correlate your AV and your firewall and your IDS and IPS uh, and other security event logs and make some sense out of them. And SIEM was like, it's the answer. And then it turned out, well, we have a whole bunch of other issues with correlation in the query engine and trying to actually extract information. So it's like, mm. you know, if they've actually cracked this problem, that's great, but it's a big problem they're tackling. Yeah. And I'm not sure a small company, no matter how funded they are, can do that. That would that would that would be so, questionable. That I would certainly I'm willing to be be convinced, but mm. yeah. So the founders are former Juniper executives, and the company has raised 33 million uh, between a seed round and an A round of investment. So they do have some mm. cash to to start hiring AI engineers. And it's also hard to introduce a solution which transcends silos, right? If you, I mean, I actually think it's a great entry pop point because you can say, well, you've already invested this much in Splunk. Imagine if you could, you know, actually integrate that with something else and get more visibility out of it. I think it's a, it's an interesting sales pitch, and we'll see where they get. <laughs> but Splunk's going to say, why don't you buy it? You know, why do you want to do that? Why don't you just, <laughs> you know, we're we're in it. We're a data analytics product. Why would you send it to somebody else to do the data analytics? It gets right. into a really tough. It's a tough market to it sell does. to. It, yeah. it is. Mm -hmm. It is. Anyway, they're out there, they're trying. It's called Selector. Link's in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, moving on, the Ethernet switch market revenue grew by almost 12% in the fourth quarter of 2021 and posted revenues of $8.5 billion. And for the full year, worldwide Ethernet revenue topped $30.7 billion. That's a growth of 9.7% over the prior year. This is all according to market research from IDC. Yeah, so a couple of key takeaways that I took out of this, Drew, was overall port shipments increased 13% and rose 16.2% on an annualized basis in 2021 in with growth in both non-data center, AE, campus, edge, branch, mm -hmm. and data center mm -hmm. portions of the switch market. So even against the backdrop of COVID, uh, even against the backdrop of supply chain problems, overall port shipments increased. I wonder who got the ports. You mean which customers yeah, exactly. got the ports right. or so, which vendors? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked before about Arista growing quite steadily. So maybe they're getting, somehow they're getting a lot more access to silicon and, and product than others. And I also think uh, we're seeing the hyperscalers getting ahead here. I think they're getting priority on the shipments and they're willing to buy, you know, much more than I think the, the traditional vendors, the brand vendors are, and they're willing to pay substantial orders going ahead because they have a much uh, stronger sense of what their demand looks like. 
So if I'm yep. Amazon or Azure, I know exactly what I need for the next five years because I've probably got a very good sense of prediction of, of what I need to consume to fill my warehouses. Whereas if you're right. Juniper or Cisco, you might be saying, well, I want to buy this much, but I don't know how much I can sell. And if I buy this much, I've got to spend this much. And if I buy less, then, you know, it's a difficult, it's a tough situation for, for the brand names. Yeah, so a couple of things. IDC said revenues for 200 and 400 gigabit switches rose more than 40% between Q3 and Q4 of 2021, of course, driven by cloud providers and hyperscalers. Um, and revenues from 100, 100 gig switches are up 70% year over year. So yes, a lot of that growth is coming from that cloud and hyperscale market looking for faster speeds. Mm -hmm. They also did highlight several switch vendors in the report. Uh, Cisco took 45.3% of the Ethernet market share, followed by Huawei at 10%. And Arista at just over 7% of the market share. Mm. Although we should note that of the three, Arista saw the greatest revenue increase uh, up almost 28% for 2021, yeah, which so, may tie back to that cloud and hyperscale growth because <laughs> Arista is selling into that 400 gig market. Yeah. So that is the Arista is actually selling more products at higher value for whatever reason. But note also that Cisco was once 80% of the Ethernet switch market and now down to 45%. Now, and, you know, that's because the market has got bigger, but customers aren't buying Cisco, you know, cloud scalers, edge networks, industrial Ethernet is an emerging market. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. And, you know, if you're counting ports, that may also include home stuff as well. Potentially, you need to read the report mm -hmm. from IDC. But I think yeah. the key takeaway for me is uh, people have been sort of complaining that they're not able to buy one gig and 10 gig switches for what they want to do in their data center. And this is why mm -hmm. uh, the volume of those products is low. And you could potentially argue that in the supply chain constrained market, if you're a vendor looking at pre-ordering products, you're just going to say, let's just skip the 10 gig and go straight to 25 gig, 50 gig, 100 gig, and customers will just have to buy that. And, you know, that's too bad if you don't like it. Yeah. I was really surprised to see that Huawei um, market share number at 10%. Mm. You know, I know they've had political issues selling into the US and EU countries, uh, but they still dominate in Asia Pacific and the rest of the globe. Uh, so to be at 10%, it seems like maybe those uh, political issues have really hampered their growth. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, there's a lot of domestic consumption for Huawei in China, of course, that's it's a huge market. And yep. they are involved in some of the biggest infrastructure works going on there. And they also have uh, access to markets in Africa and Southeast Asia. So while we should be a significant player in that sense. Yep. Yeah, still are. But th the difference between, this is worldwide mm. shares between Cisco and Huawei just really struck me given how Huawei was sort of, you know, uh, the, the the one to beat it seemed in the, you know, maybe five years ago. Yeah, yeah, no, I see your point. Yeah, I'd agree. Mm. Yeah. All right, moving on. Researchers at Microsoft have released a new tool to help network admins scan for MicroTik routers that may be vulnerable to being co-opted into the TrickBot botnet. Uh, TrickBot's using the MicroTik routers as proxies to help obscure the location of the command and control servers by redirecting traffic through non-standard ports. So not an outage. They're just using it for command and control. The TrickBot is right. you know, using so that it doesn't have to use a Tor, a Tor network, which tends to be easily found or easily detectable is quite common. And so that's quite clever if you think about it, You know, using a vulnerability. It's also a bit of a, bit of a ding on Microtech. But the thing that I'm torn about here, Drew, is so it's good to see Microsoft producing a simple tool that helps people. But Microsoft can't keep its own product secure. So why can't those people focus on that? <laughs> you're saying. You're saying. <laughs> Physician, heal thyself. No, that's something like saying. that. Like <laughs> while you're busy looking at, you know, Microtech routers, why aren't you actually going and fixing the things that need fixing? Um, I had somebody 
really get up on a rant in my face this week about Microsoft's licensing algorithms about its Defender pricing in Azure and on-prem and how they're removing mm. features from the base level of licensing and up to the next level. Customers are basically being forced to spend a huge chunk more of their budget just to get access to features, basic, simple features that are needed to secure a Windows environment. And I'm looking at them mm. going like, why are you using Windows? Why are you paying Microsoft to secure an insecure product that Microsoft sold you? Anyway, I think it's clownery like that. You know, like if uh, I do believe and continue, will continue to say that Microsoft is a big reason why IT departments have such a bad reputation. The product is so demonstrably awful. It's unstable. It's hard to use. It's in unsafe. You know, like Excel spreadsheets still running macros in 2020 type stuff. Um, and it just generates a bad reputation for you as a service provider to your organization. And I think Microsoft hasn't been brought to account on that. And it, it boggles me. I know I'm using this microtech thing as a rant against Microsoft, but it does. You've really hijacked the story. Yeah, I have, to rant yeah. about <laughs> But it does, it does. I, I think IT is about service delivery and the products that you deliver service on reflect your, your organization. And you should think about it. And I think that's the way they think about it. And if Microsoft is such a substandard product, what are you going to do about it? The answer is probably nothing, but nonetheless, let's realize it. I would love to hear maybe from folks who are using Microsoft, particularly now in their Azure incarnation, whether you feel like product quality and security has improved uh, compared to when you were running it in, in servers uh, on-prem and on, on desktops and mm -hmm. so on. You know, you can always hit us up at packetpushes.net slash SU because I feel like Microsoft has in some ways tried to clean up its act. It was essentially the villain of the, the 90s and the early 2000s for being so shoddily uh, developed in terms of security and yes, deserved all of that bad reputation. But I feel like it's starting to change. Maybe that's just my perception. I don't know. So I'd, we'd love to hear from you and find Microsoft out Microsoft Patch Tuesday is still a shocker, you know, it's, 40 to 90 <laughs> right, it's there. critical patches <laughs> every month, right? <laughs> I think you probably can make a strong case, yes. <laughs> All right, our last story for the day, just a short one. Uh, Google's domain registration service called Google Domains is now generally available. The service lets individuals and businesses register a domain name and add features such as DNSSEC for no additional charge. Uh, the service has been in beta since 2015 uh, with millions of active registrations. It's now GA uh, if you are looking to get a domain. Seven years in beta, seven years of wondering if Google's actually going to deliver it. And even <laughs> now, people are still going to say, is, is Google going to kill it? Uh, so Google's got a problem in that sense, and it's hard not to imagine it. Personally, I have moved all my domain registrations to Cloudflare because they charge you nothing to do so. They charge you whatever the... Uh, I can charges them to host them. That's what they charge you. They're not making a profit on them at mm -hmm. all. And conceptually, mm -hmm. I believe that Cloudflare is probably more committed to securing my access to those and keeping them safe than and making it a long-term product than Google. So, okay, that's nice for Google. And if I was on Google Cloud, I might move my domains to this Google service. But otherwise, I'd be registering my domains at Cloudflare. It's cheap and probably reliable service. My assumption is that Google is betting on the fact that more consumers and small businesses have heard of Google and have Cloudflare, and that's the market they can go tackle because they're also tying in things like you can get you know, a custom email with Google Workspaces and uh, build mm. an online store with Google Sites. So it is more about helping that, I think, small business uh, get an online presence. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think those kind of folks are going to be less aware of Cloudflare and less aware of <laughs> DNS vulnerabilities. Yep, so I agree. That's, yeah. that's who they're chasing. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, you, if you do all your shopping at the local supermarket, you buy whatever the local supermarket shows you. And that's exactly how cloud right. services work. Yes. But those in the know know that there are other There are other options, yes. I just personally <laughs> use Cloudflare for my own. It's rather rather insignificant 
domain name portfolio, which is about 20, but (laughs) which is more than just about anybody needs, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah, What are you doing? 20 domains? I have one for each of my children. (laughs) Wow. I only have two children, but yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, you know, that's up to you. You're willing to pay the bill then. It's only eight bucks a month, eight bucks a year to register the domain. Hosting the domain is a different story, but there you go. All right, well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking to Juniper Appster about the latest features in their intent-based networking platform. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about a new release of Juniper's Appster intent-based networking platform for data centers. Our guest is Scott Snedden. He is data center practice lead at Juniper. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. And just to get us started, can you give us the elevator pitch on Appster just to give folks some context? I'm happy to. Thanks for having me, guys. So uh, Appstra is, I mean, you said it in the title there, it is a intent-based networking system. You can think of it as a operations system, not a traditional network manager, but more kind of managing the end-to-end lifecycle of the things that need to happen on a network. So it's an automation tool. Certainly it, it helps you design and deploy the network as most traditional sort of network automations tools can do. But the real value is in that intent model. So you use the tool to design the network or declare the intent. You use the tool to deploy the network or to implement the intent. And because I use the tool to declare and define and provision that intent, what I've created there is the proverbial single source of truth. As anybody that's gone down an automation journey knows, step one of automating is to build that single source of truth or understand what you're automating um, because you can't effectively automate what you don't know. And, and so um, the, the process of, of designing and building through Appstra creates that single source of truth. And then it's got a powerful set of analytics and monitoring tools validation tools that ensure that the network consistently operates as intended. So it's it's going through a this sort of closed loop validation cycle constantly um, to monitor the network, to make sure that the configuration is consistent, to make sure that what was declared in the intent is what's deployed and what is continuing to run. There's an outage. We can really quickly identify where that outage came from because we, again, have that very solid single source of truth or intent model. So, you know, the goal of Appstra is to just make a life easier of a network operator. Um, yeah. So we used to talk a lot about Appstra being an intent-based solution and the modeling and the abstraction. And what we've, well, I think what you're saying here is that when you boil all of that stuff down, mm-hmm. you can have a technology up, but what you're really saying is that we're now focused on the operational aspects of the network. That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and it's about how do you operate the network every day? Whereas before we used to get all hooked up on how many ports and speeds and feeds and latencies across and, you know, what, segmentation strategy we were going to use and what we're now able to do because we've moved past what I call the day one and day day zero. What do I buy? Day one, how do I deploy it? What's the configuration? Yep. What's the architecture to how do I operate this every day? And intent-based networking, which is what Appster was one of the first people to, to come up with is this idea that I need to operate this every day. I need mm-hmm. to make changes regularly and I need to do it flawlessly and it needs automation, but it also needs, is that, is that reasonable. You've got it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Um, you know, let's use the analogy where we're building a house, you know, I can hire a contractor or I can, you know, <laughs> study uh, architecture and I can design a house and then I can bring the folks in to kind of nail up the framing and, and, um, you know, route the plumbing, uh, which you know we can draw analogies to in networking because we're kind of the plumbers. Um, 
but then, you know, those contractors all go home and, and I have this thing. Now, what do I do when the water heater goes wonky? I've mm. got to go and figure that out. And wouldn't it be great if I had maybe some fancy home automation system that could tell me that the water heater was starting to go wonky before it went wonky. And I can, yeah. I can figure <laughs> that out in advance. And so, so, right. you know, the, the operational, the ongoing things are, are really the key. Um, the other key is, is really about the people that, that do that and operate it. You know, we've all been in environments where you've got one or two rock stars that are the experts that know the network. And, and, you know, we've always kind of made a tongue in cheek joke about, well, what if that smart guy gets hit by a bus? But the reality in this day and age is that smart guy is being recruited like crazy and might leave. And so, you know, it's a real, real threat now that that tribal knowledge or that that sort of um, single source of truth that is in your rock star's brain might go Mm. away. And so we think that a lot of the big value of an intent based tool like Abstra is that you can effectively get that single source of truth out of the mind of the rock star and into a tool that's repeatable and reusable. I think the other thing that's important to know about Abstra is that, you know, obviously there's some secret sauce for the intent-based side, but for day-to-day operations, for the protocols you're using, this is standard stuff. It's not anything proprietary to Juniper. We're talking about BGP, things like that. That's absolutely key. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've sort of converged in an industry on the right way to build a data center. We, we really believe that IP fabrics, clo fabrics, um, you know, EVP and VX lands, these are the technologies that are the best for a data center. All the solutions have converged on those technologies. Now that question is, is pretty much addressed. Yeah. I guess, I guess that leads to the question of now that Appster is part of Juniper that happened quite some time ago. Is there, what's been happening in terms of redeveloping the product or changing it? Is there new features coming out now? Yeah, yeah. That's um, So first of all, the commitment to multi-vendor is as strong as ever. You know, we really truly think w- that that is our differentiator with this tool. Yes, there are other intent-based tools on the market from other vendors that only work with that vendor's hardware. And so, you know, consistent with the idea that we're using open standards and BGP and these, these standard protocols to build the network, we are also... So delivering an open multi-vendor capable uh, intent-based tool. So whether you've got Cisco or Arista or, you know, um, Dell running Sonic or, or Juniper, of course, um, Appster is going to work way great with all of those work equally with all of those. Um, so, so that, that commitment continues, that does not go away. And, and, hmm. you know, that we see that as a big differentiator, I, I think should. Well, I think it, it means that customers who've got a network, but maybe don't have a software operated model yet or intent based thing can say, I can keep my existing hardware and bring it into Appstra. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's that's, that's that right. So, so you've yeah. got, you know, we'd love as Juniper, we'd love to ca- talk to you about our switching things and stuff like that. <laughs> but rest assured that, that there is some investment protection. So if, if you yeah, yeah. bought a bunch of Nexus stuff just last year, but you're not effectively managing it as well as you'd like, we can help you with that. And, and you know, you don't have to throw out that Nexus stuff overnight. Mm. So that's absolutely part of the part of the vision and part of the story. When we talk about new features and functions, I mean, so the first thing that we want to kind of highlight in this next release of Appster that's dropping, you know, in the next coming weeks is what we're calling edge data center support. Um, so 
it, you know, back to kind of these architectures, when I think about um, EVP and VXLAN, a lot of times people will think about topologies that are very leaf spine, right? Mm -hmm. I've got some spine nodes that that are routing. I'm, I'm doing, you know, sort of an edge routed and bridging architecture where my VXLAN tunnels are terminating on leaf spine, leaf nodes. Those spines, I cannot attach servers to. They're, they're sort of just core routing devices. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain quantity of ports that that justify that leaf spine and if your your footprint is smaller than that maybe it doesn't justify purchasing a couple of spine nodes to just pass packets if all you've got is two switches worth of server connect so yeah um yeah. Well, i think there's two sides to this here yeah you don't need a leaf spine like some vendors actually mandate a leaf spine yeah. even if you're only connecting a dozen ports right and that's ridiculous because you could do the same thing with two switches and just can get hooked them together. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. It's, it's then, so that's the use case that we're addressing here. Um, you know, with Appstra in that intent model, there are a set of, of um, topologies that are supported. It's a broad set of topologies, um, but traditionally has skewed larger, like two spines and four leaves and up from there is, mm -hmm. is sort of the topology that we've provided for in the past with mm -hmm. this new leaf. We've with this new release, we've added, added some features that we're calling collapse spine, which yeah. allow us to get into a two switch environment, you know, a pair of switches with some ports that are facing the WAN or the other stuff and some ports that are facing servers. So now the, the simple reality is that a lot of people need to do that, say in factories, right? Yeah. If you're going to have a bunch of servers in a factory where you're going to do some edge data center, as you call it, or edge processing, like a, a lot of the times what we have is factories now, there's so much data streaming off the telemetry and the mm -hmm. monitoring systems that you need a bunch of servers there to collate it. And then it gets pulped. I call it pulping or juiced. And yeah. then the data goes off somewhere into the cloud to a PaaS somewhere to be analyzed. But that still doesn't mean that you don't need a bunch of servers with running, you know, a Kubernetes or a VMware cluster doing, you know, hosting a bunch of tools, but you don't equally need four leafs, two spines, and a half a dozen servers to run the platform. What you want is something that's two switches and low cost to get started. That it's yeah exactly whether it's you know industrial environments where where you're doing you know, telemetry from from factory floor devices we see use cases in like distributed gaming networks where you know you're supporting some some heads up display in a bunch of remote sites um i there's fit in telco for you know 5g topologies and things where you've essentially got a small data center at a head end or at that you know maybe in a radio tower lots of fit for that kind of thing and and so we just wanted to be able to tackle that if i've got a what sounds like a fairly simple design for this small edge uh, location do i really need these sort of the elephant gun of intent-based networking to operate it we think that the visibility in analytics is beneficial. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe automation isn't the priority because maybe the environment is pretty static. You know, frankly, if you don't change things very often, maybe the overhead of automating those changes might be you know, more onerous than just hitting the CLI and configuring two lines of, of stuff to turn on a VLAN. Mm -hmm. But the, the capabilities of, of visibility and monitoring and, and you know, proactive troubleshooting and the kinds of things we can bring through the the day to and beyond functions of Appstra are pretty beneficial. And so we think we can add a lot of value there. And then more often than not, yeah, most, if I think of a pop or a data center with just two switches, that in and of itself is pretty simple. But there are a lot of cases where that two switch environment is one of many. 
And so on aggregate, you might still have 50 or 100 switches. Got They're it. just distributed in two or four switch bunches. But we can manage that distributed environment with a centralized Appster instance and, and then add value. You know, so there's a, an economy of scale there, if you will, of, of, you know, kind of looking at your whole environment through a single pane. If, right. You know. So if I'm looking at multiple small data center locations individually, managing them might be simple, but if I've got 50 or 100 or whatever, I get this visibility, uh, you know, through one console to see what's going on. And there may be cases where I don't even have an engineer nearby so I can, with that intent-based element, get a sense of, is a problem coming? Yeah, that's exactly it. Exactly. Mm. I think that's a real difference though, this idea of collapsing the fabric, but it also means if you've got a data center and you want to pilot, you don't have to commit to a multi-million dollar purchase like some other intent-based solutions who want you to buy all new switches and a, you know half a rack of servers to be able to deploy the software on top. This yeah, is a awesome. much smaller package. Like the, the entry point here is a much lower point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got, I mean, you had one of our customers at Vania on a, uh, a Tech Bytes podcast in, in late 2021. And, and he mentioned just how simple and easy it was to get up and running on Appstra. It's a small footprint VM. It doesn't take a lot of resources on the server side. Um, the, financially, the way we license it is on a per switch basis. So if you only need to manage two switches, it's a really cheap purchase. There's not a lot of upfront. It's it's pay as you grow. It's, it's an incremental cost as you mm. grow. So so yeah, it's a really good way to pilot to get started. Even if you've got a large data center, you know, start with a new pod of Juniper hardware or somebody else's. Um, use Appster to manage that, understand it, get exposed. And then over time, if you do grow into a leaf spine, if you do end up in a full clo architecture, we can help you with that and we can get you there. And and you know, mm. it's it's re it's really easy to add to or expand that blueprint from a collapsed into a full leaf spine in production, you know, just additively scaling. And I also understand you've got another feature around policy enforcement. Kind of a side effect of this automated approach using templates is you have the benefit of a inherently more secure environment because you're kind of eliminating a lot of the manual errors. You have a strong audit trail. You have a good understanding of the changes that are happening. So, you know, like especially in these edge node models where you might have distributed <laughs> teams managing stuff, you know, just enforcing consistency inherently drives a better security posture. But then in addition to that, we've made some specific focus in some of the workflows and visibility tools on Appstra. So, you know, there's this policy assurance set of features to kind of, you know, drive you towards a zero trust kind of, of, of footprint or, or mindset, but really what it comes down to, because we're talking about managing switches, right? Appstra is not the tool that's going to manage your firewall. It's not directly managing, say, VMware NSX that's doing micro-segmentation policy. Yeah. It is managing the switching layer and the physical assets that are in the data center. And we all know switches do ACLs. They don't do stateful stuff and deep packet inspection, right? right. But, you know, we also know that a best practice is probably to leverage a advanced security footprint and a set of ACLs to sort of control things, say in between VRFs or even in between ports on a switch. But, but again, one of the big challenges of doing that is TCAM size on the switches. If I end up with massive yeah. access lists, I just, you know, that's not what a switch is built for and, and it's difficult <laughs> to do. So this policy enforcement, policy assurance framework within Appstra you know, because I'm using this intent model to sort of define my configuration 
before I configure it, we have the ability to understand what is intended by those security policy definitions. And before I ever write an ACL to a switch, I can check and see what that ACL is going to do. I can mm -hmm. validate that particular ACL entry against the rest of that policy list and eliminate things that are repetitive to save on TCAM space or identify things that, um, you know, might not be needed because I've got a, a less specific rule. Like say I wanted to deny TCP through a given address block and then 50 lines later in that ACL list, I've got a deny to a specific IP for SSH. Um, well, I might not need that more specific entry because the function of that entry is encapsulated in a less specific rule. If I'm doing the traditional stare and compare manually looking at those access lists, I might miss that. And and yeah. so this is a tool that can help identify those things better. Optimize You're adding more layers of validation to the configuration. So you That's, can now that would be especially important because you're multi vendor. You do need to adapt for each of the switches. So you need to be a lot smarter about how you program the ASIC and the software that sits above it, right? That's right. Yeah, that's mm. right. And, and so, you know, inherent to this set of tools is, is again, that multi-vendor capability. So you're defining these, these access lists or these security policies in generic terms. You know, the Appstra system is essentially compiling those into the vendor-specific config, you know, you know, whether it be Nexus OS or Junos or, or whatever might be running underneath, the syntax of those is always different. So what you then have is a, is a centralized, consistent tool to validate those rules and to audit those rules and make sure that they're deployed correctly each time without necessarily relying on a one of us to, to remember the syntax on, on Arista and the syntax on Junos, because they're different. Scott, I feel like we could be talking more about this, but we are at the end of our time. If folks want to dig into this themselves, where should they go to get more details? So we've got a page on, on the Juniper website, juniper.net slash appstra. There's all kinds of information there and a button to click to contact us. I'd love to talk to you about it. Fantastic. That's juniper.net slash appstra. Well, thank you, Scott, for joining us. And thanks to Juniper for being a sponsor. If you like this episode, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog, all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.